0: Uh, Praise God and honor Him for this marvelous day that He has given us, and I am just so grateful for this moment, this privilege uh, to be in this place to proclaim the Word of God today. I thank God for Pastor Hoffman. We met a few months ago as he came up to visit uh, Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary Graduate School in the Washington D.C. area in Greenbelt, Maryland, where we have a campus. and I serve as the servant leader there uh, for the Greenbelt campus. And, uh, and so we had a great lunch together, and uh, I don't know if it was because of the lunch or because he had already checked me out. Um, I, I don't know what caused him to ask me to be the preacher for today. Uh, but I am, I'm delighted that he extended such an invitation. To come to this place and to open up the Word of God today, and so um, it's it's been a pleasure already uh, to to worship with you today, uh, to have the feel of authentic worship. Uh, in this place, thank you, Donald, for the for the great uh, introduction. Short at that, appreciate it, and uh, I am grateful that we do have a graduate uh, in this uh, church uh, from uh, Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary, and my understanding, a current Ph.D. candidate a Ph.D. student. Uh, so, Arlene, stand up. Is Arlene right? Arnett. Arnett. Arnett's. A, a, I was close. All right. Arnett, uh, stand up. We're grateful. Amen. And so I bring you greetings from Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary and Graduate School where Peter Taig uh, is our president and uh, thank him for his leadership of 20 years Uh, And we praise God for our school and what it's doing and the imprint that it has in this area. Uh, For six years, we've been in this area proclaiming the gospel and training men and women to be able to express a biblical worldview uh, in our work world and in our churches. And so we're grateful for the school. You saw my family. Um, My wife, Angie, and then we have two grandboys with us, that'd be Jordan and Isaiah, and we have a grandniece with us today, and uh, uh, Kalaza uh, is with us today, and so I'm grateful for their presence uh, as they have joined us here. I want to invite your attention to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, which will claim our attention today. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but it is but has or was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need." So end of our reading. I want to talk with you today about summons to steadfastness. When the Bible scholar N.T. Wright was asked what he said, what he would tell his children on his deathbed, he stated like this. He said, I would tell them, look at Jesus. He then went on to explain what he, was, what he meant. And he said that the person talking about Jesus who walks out of the pages of the gospel to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He says, he is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, he says, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. He says, if you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. And he says, go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character, that has him, if you will, as preeminent that has him not as a spectator but as supreme in your life. I suggest to you today that that Jesus should be the central character of our lives. He ought to be preeminent in our lives. He should be superior in all things in our lives. And so the book of Hebrews speaks about the superiority of Christ. He is superior in his majesty as the Son of God. He is superior in his ministry as the Son of God. He is in him, we find a better Savior. We find better security. We find better sanctuary. We find a better sacrifice. The book of Hebrews is trying to say to us that you need to see Jesus Christ as superior to everything and everyone. That he is greater than everything, everyone. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than the old covenant. He is greater than the sacrifices that were made. He says, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is superior to everything and everyone. The writer tells us that really in the first two verses of the book as he starts out where he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things uh, through whom also he has made the world. He says he is superior. He is, he is greater than anyone or anything. And so when the Lord Jesus lived on earth, his ministry was essentially that of a prophet. And he came to reveal men in a singly undiluted and memorable way. And when he returns to reign, you know he returns in his ministry primarily as a king. Yeah, he will conquer all his foes and he will inaugurate a rule of righteousness. But today, our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, he sits at the right hand in glory and his ministry now is that of priest. You see, today's passage introduces the theme of Jesus' high priesthood. The epilogue of this introduction ends in chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. And in between, we find the superiority of Jesus to the priest of Aaron, as is explained in the between. And throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is encouraging these believers that, they, that what they have in Christ is better than what they had in the old covenant. And so he says, since you do, don't go backwards. Since you do, don't, don't, don't look back. Since that's what you have in Christ, he says, don't return to your old ways. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we are encouraged to hold fast our confession and to approach the throne of God boldly. Two exhortations in that text that tells us that, listen, you need to hold fast and you need to approach the throne of God boldly. And so the question should be raised, why should we hold fast our confession? Why should we be encouraged or called to steadfastness? I believe the text not only gives us two exhortations, but it really gives us three reasons why we ought to be steadfast in our relationship with the Lord. And the first one is, is that we're summoned to steadfastness because of the dignity and the position of our Lord's ministry. It's right there in your bulletins. He says, because of who he is and because of his position, he says you ought to have steadfastness. You see, Jesus is is a great high priest. And perhaps... Some Jews were claiming that Christianity had no priesthood like Aaron. They, they realized what they had in the past. But the writer of the Hebrew is trying to say, listen, what you have in Jesus is much better. But Jesus was superior to the priest of Aaron. But his character and his work is so important. So note, note the writer's focus in the text. He says, our high priest, he says, he has passed through the heavens. Notice the focus on the ascension of Jesus, that he has gone through the heavens. What does that mean? This, it means that we have entered, that he has entered the very presence of God. You see, the priest of Aaron served in an earthly sanctuary, but Jesus went far beyond all those limits of time and space, and he reached into God's presence where his work really matters. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, he says here, the Son of God, the historical Jesus is our great high priest. If there's a reason for us to have steadfastness is that we can look at Jesus and see that he has passed through the heavens, See his dignity, see his position. He has passed through the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven's similar to that of what the the high priest would do as he would go through three portals. He goes through the three heavens and he sits down at the right hand of God. Listen to that, he intercedes on our behalf. He's in a seat of authority and this place of dignity. The historical son of God sat down at the right hand of God. That, That term, son of God, presents Jesus as the one who was perfectly combined with humanity and divinity in his ministry for the lost. You see, the great and grand point of this is for the authors, Jewish hearers, to know the overarching supremacy of Jesus Christ. So the preacher, the writer, the friend knew that amidst the arising troubles that they would face, some of them would look back through rose-colored glasses to the Levitical system and they would overimagine the comfort of having a priestly meditation and some would be in danger of being sucked back into the system. And so the writer's saying, listen, put your eyes upon the one who was on earth but now sits on the right hand of God. Keep your eyes upon him in case you decide that you want to go back to where you came from. I imagine in this room that there have been some folks who have thought about going back to what you used to have. Who, used, who enjoyed the pleasures of sin and want to go back to what they used to have, that this walk with Christ is not what you thought it would be, that it wouldn't, it's not all peace, it's not all joy. There are some hard times, there are some struggles, there are some tribulations. There, there are some times when I just don't feel like going on and I want to go back to what I had. Maybe there's no, there no one in here like that today. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure that in your heart of hearts there have been some times that you want to give up on this race and walking this walk with Christ, and you want to go back. But the writer to the Hebrew has said, you've got to be steadfast. You've got to hold on to what you have. And what you have is that you have a Savior who sits on the right hand of God and who intercedes on your behalf, who has power and authority. He says, keep your eyes upon him. Gently for our our undergraduate classes, every t- they have four entry points uh, in every semester, and so every first class I walk in and I encourage them to be steadfast in what they do. I encourage them to keep going. It was after the May graduation all that that I sent pictures to all of our undergraduates. And I sent the pictures of the graduation, and when I went into the class, I told them, the reason I sent you the pictures is not so that you could just see those graduates, that you could see what was happening as our campus has 63 students who graduated. The reason I sent you those pictures was because I wanted you to remember that when you feel like giving up, When you feel like quitting, when you feel like throwing in the towel, I want you to pull up those pictures and I want you to put yourself in that cap and gown and I want you to imagine yourself going across the stage and I want you to have steadfastness as you do this work. As you go through the rigor of trying to understand the Word of God, I want you to be steadfast because there's an end result in all of this. And I remember... As I said to them that I remember myself sitting in a chapel wanting to quit, had a young family (laughs) and had a job trying to work this job and trying to go to school and I wanted to quit and a guy named Butch Harmon came by and preached a sermon called Staying Power. I remember it so well. And I didn't know the verse at 1 Corinthians 15, 58, but before I got 100 yards down the, uh, down the walkway, I had rememberized that verse and has become my life verse of steadfastness. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So I stopped by this morning to tell you, listen, don't quit. Be steadfast. Hang in there. Amen. Hang in there because, because, because you need to keep going. And all you need to do, first of all, is remember the dignity and the authority of Christ Jesus, of where he sits at the right hand and that he's interceding on your behalf. Listen, this was a very strong teaching. There is simply no contest between the Levitical system and what is provided by Christ. Why? Because there's a danger of spiritual drifting. And the writer, the preacher here, is saying, Therefore, since our high priest has entered through the heavens and is sitting at the right hand of God, he says to us, let us hold firmly to what we profess." Literally, what he means is hold firmly to the confession, holding to the faith that requires some determination of our past. In other words, the greatest of Jesus as our high priest provides us with an incentive to make the commitment to draw near. Listen, turn your Bibles, you're in Hebrews, but stay right there. But turn to chapter 10. Because remember I said that this is the epilogue. This is the epilogue. This is is the epilogue to this this introduction of chapter 4. The epilogue closes in this way. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the word of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, watch this, let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience of our bodies with pure waters. Let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering. He's saying, let us confess that he is our high priest, own him publicly. Make it the course of your soul. In other words, he said that that, that, that that we ought not just to have him to talk about Jesus around in our private closets. But we ought to talk about Jesus publicly. Bishop Westcock, the commentator of Hebrews, said it this way, the writer everywhere insists on the duty of the public confession of faith, a clear declaration of belief openly in the face of men. We ought to do it openly. Philip Hughes said it this way, faith is the belief that is both inwardly entertained by the heart and outwardly expressed before men. Here's how Paul said it. Paul says, For it is with the heart that we believe in it and justified, it, and it's with the mouth that confession that we are saved. It says, Listen, our confession of Christ, of what we believe about Him and who He is ought not to be private but it also ought to be public. That we must confess with the heart joyfully, openly that He is our Savior and that because of what He has done for us on the cross of Calvary I have eternal life in Him and He has changed my life. He has made me brand new. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. We ought to proclaim that publicly. Amen. We ought to have We ought to make sure that our confession is not just in congenial company, but it's also in unfriendly company. Amen. And so, my friends, there's a summons to steadfastness. There's a summons to stay the journey. There's a summons to stay that says stay on the road. It's because, one, of the dignity and the position of our Christ, of our Savior, of our high Priest. But there's a second movement in the text. And the second movement is that we're summons because of the sympathy of our high priest. That's in verse 15. How can we hold fast to our faith? Has God done anything to make it possible? That's a good question. Verse 15 says, yes, that the writer has said that he has, he has been touched, if you will, with our infirmities. That he, is, that he has been, if you will, uh, he can sympathize with our weakness. The writer has declared in chapter 2, in case you're taking notes, in chapter 2, verse 18, he declared the ability of Jesus to help the tempted. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Yeah, he, he states it here in a negative sense by saying to us that for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness he was dealing with with some people who felt that jesus was too remote to be human that he could not be touched with our infirmities and the writer states three facts here about jesus he he first says that jesus is no stranger to dealing with and helping struggling human beings he's no stranger you see, the text, the text asserts it by saying he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that, that he lived in a human body, mind, and soul with all the limitations except for sin, that, that his instrument, so to speak, was the same as ours, Emmanuel, came to be among us, took on a body like ours. Son of God lived in the flesh. He has an instrument like ours. And so he can sympathize with what we go through, my brothers and my sisters. That's good news. To know that he's touched by my infirmities. He's touched by my weaknesses. And my weaknesses are not just the sins and the temptations of my life. But the weaknesses are the times that I have anxiousness in my life. The times that I have, if you will, depression in my life. The times when, when I don't feel comfortable and I, and I feel depressed. I feel lonely. He, he, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Aren't you glad about that? I learned, I learned that, 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 that the fact about pianos, that, that if there are two pianos in the same room and a note is struck on one, the, the same note will gently respond to the other because it's not touched by somebody else's hand, but because they're in the same room, when that one note is sounded, the other one sounds in a gentle way. It's called sympathetic tone. And Christ as well is touched by what we go through. Yeah. He goes through, he knows what it's like to have weakness in his life. Yeah, when you're when you're tempted, just 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 remember that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. When you feel anxiety and you feel pain, remember the pain that he felt on the cross of Calvary. You've got to remember that our Savior has been touched by our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. It resonates with him and the people of God ought to say amen. Because listen, when you go when you going through it, God says, I'm going through it with you. Jesus says, I understand your weaknesses and there is no note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted instrument. For we, look at the text, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Somebody ought to praise his name right there. To know that when I go through it, he feels what I feel. And that's a reason for praise. But it's not just because he feels it, but listen, the text also points out that he was tempted in every way like us, but yet he was without sin. He battled with Satan's temptations, but he claimed the victory through all the struggle. He tempted him with the pride of life. He tempted him with the lust of the flesh, but he, he came out victorious in it all. And how did he come out victorious? You know it. He used the Word of God. Because he was in a relationship with his father, he was able to use the word of God to be victorious through the struggle. And so Christ came out victorious so that we can be victorious, so that we can have dominion over sin, so that we can have the power to say no to sin, and that we are the ones who realize that he is the one who has given us the victory, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, raises and lives in our mortal Bodies, so that we would have the power to say no and become victorious. You see, his victorious experience with temptation provides sympathy, encouragement, and victory for us in our temptation. And so the writer says, You want you want a reason for steadfastness? You want a reason to keep going? He says, Listen, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast because, number one, of the dignity and the position of our Savior. Hold fast because of the sympathy of our high priest. But then there's a third movement, and the third movement is that we're summons to steadfastness because of our access to the throne of God, the throne of grace. I love the text. The writer... The writer's pointing out that he understands our weaknesses in all points, was tempted like us, yet without sin. He says in verse 16, there's this exhortation, let us, therefore, since he's been tempted, since he has been victorious, since he without sin, since he understands our weaknesses, he says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. He says we can approach him. With reverence, we can come before his throne with reverence. We can come to God. The veil of the temple is rent, so we have access personally to go in to the holies of holies, if you will, into the presence of God. We have access. The term here which says confidence in the New International Version It it has a long documented history in classical Greek and denotes free and open speech of citizens with one another. And significantly, it, it has never been used for prayer in the pagan classical literature, but rather it was the Jews who first began to use it in the Greek Old Testament to describe prayer. What it means when he says that you can approach the throne boldly, it means that you can do it with frankness and open outpouring of the heart. There, there, there is no suggestion here of disrespect. It, it just means that you can come to God openly with, with what's on your heart. That, that's what I like about God, that, that God can take, the stuff that we dish out to him of what we're feeling on the inside, when we're angry, when we're down, when we're dismayed, when we don't feel like just talking to, about what's happening in our lives. He says, you can come to me boldly, openly, frankly, and it doesn't mean that you're disrespecting him, but it means that you can come to him without hesitation or apprehension. My God, what a great thing. What a praise to know that I can go to God without apprehension, without hesitation. That's a contrast of what the high priest had to go into the holies of holies with trepidation. He had to go in with bells on just in case he died on the inside, but with trepidation. But yet, you and I, as mortals, as, as, as crackpots, as, as, as clay vessels, we can go into the presence of God without hesitation. We can go boldly. We can go frankly before the throne of God. My God. It's a grand revelation that I can come frankly and confidently as a brother, as a sister, and go into the presence of God. Five years after 17-year-old Trevon Martin was shot by George Zimmerman in 2012, Time magazine interviewed his parents, Sabrina and Tracy, who also wrote a book about their ordeal called Rest in Power. The Martins told Time magazine that that they wrote their story to encourage another family that has gone through the loss of a child. Trevon's father, Tracy, shares that he has a hole in his heart, and he is still healing through helping others. He says, my lament is my son was unarmed. And he was a 17-year-old, and he didn't deserve to die in that manner. We missed out on the rest of his life. When you lose a child, Tracy says, it is a different type of pain, a different type of hurt. You never get over it. And then the interviewer asked Tracy, says, you have... You and your wife have a deep faith in God and trust in Scripture. How has your faith changed since Trevon's death? Tracy Martin says, there is only one way to come out of this dark place, and that is the power of prayer. I do believe that the hole in the heart of Tracy. I do believe the hurt that Sabrina and Tracy were feeling as parents because of Trayvon's death. I do believe that, that the times when they were feeling angry, those times when they were confused about what was going on, I do believe that there was no doubt that they approached the throne of God boldly and frankly, and they told God how they felt of what was going through their minds. They, they had to be going through something to even want to come to a point of forgiveness of George Zimmerman. They had to be going through the pain, and yet they could go to the throne of God boldly and tell God what they were thinking. And listen, and when we are going through, we can come boldly. And what happens when we come to the throne of God boldly? The text tells us we find grace to help us in our time of need (laughs) we find grace and mercy to help us to make it through the holes in our lives and the wounds in our lives the weaknesses in our lives we find grace and mercy mercy for our past failures, pardon for our many failures, and grace to meet our present and our future, strength for the demands of doing God's service and living in a world that is not always friendly. We find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We receive, if you will, the full heart of God as the merciful meets us in our sins and misery. And he heals us. And what we receive is we receive the full hand of God's grace, his unmerited favor and loving regard that that Jesus keeps coming and coming so that we can say with the way that James said it in chapter 4, verse 6, he says he gives us more grace. There's always more grace. And isn't isn't it good to know that... When you're going through something, that you can come to the throne of God boldly to find grace and mercy in the time of need. It it always comes, and the verse concludes, in the time of need, not not on our time clocks, but just as as we say in the African-American experience, just in the nick of time. That he comes on our behalf on God's time clock, on on his time is always the perfect time. He knows just when to step into our lives and give us just what we need, just at the right time. It's his mercy. So, so listen, if we fail to pray, what happens? We rob ourselves of this great timely resource of God giving us grace and mercy and the just and the right time when, he, when we need it. You see, God is calling us to steadfastness. He's calling us, he summons us to steadfastness, and he's calling us to the steadfastness. We have an understanding of Jesus and our confession of Christ as we pray to him and know that when we pray, we find grace and mercy in a time of need through Christ Jesus. We've been called to steadfastness, summons to keep going and don't look back, Don't look through the rose-colored glasses and look back at what you had. Don't look back to the bondage that you had. Just remember that you've got freedom now that Jesus has set you free, that Jesus has come into your life and to brought to bring about an abundant life in Christ Jesus. Just know what you have in Christ that is much greater and far better than what you used to have, amen, that you've got a greater walk with Christ. You've got a greater freedom. You've got a greater peace. You've got a greater joy. What you have in Christ is far better than what you had when you were in the world. You've been released to walk in the newness of life. You've been released to walk in freedom. You've been released to serve Jesus Christ. And I encourage you today to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. N.T. Wright says, look to your high priest. Look to the one who really loves you. Look to the one who has freed you. Look to the one who has delivered you. Look to the one who loves you with an everlasting love. He says, look to Jesus. He is is irreplaceable. He says, look to him. He says, look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look to Jesus, the alpha and the omega. Look to Jesus, the defender of the weak. Look to Jesus, the bread of life, the great physician, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the prince of life, the the friend of sinners. Look to Jesus, the true vine, the water of life, the great high priest. Look to Jesus, the captain of our salvation. Look to Jesus. Is the resurrection and the life Look to Jesus, the conqueror of death Look to Jesus, the King of kings And the Lord of lords May he be your steadfastness May the high priest who sits on the right hand of God be your steadfastness. May the one who sympathizes with your weakness be your steadfastness. May the one who gives you grace and mercy in the time of need be your steadfastness. Thank you, Father, for your word today. And you know that we are prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God we love. God, fix our hearts. Fix our eyes. <laughs> to be steadfast. That we might, oh God, continue on this journey. That we would do as this Hebrew writer has told us. That we will hold fast to our confession. That we will approach and come to the throne of grace and mercy where we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who lives within us and teaches us and guides us and empowers us. God, use us for your service. And may people around us see our steadfastness even in the midst of our weakness. May they see that we have a high priest who's better than anything we ever possessed in our lives. Thank you for Jesus today. We love you, we praise you, and we will continue serving you until the very end. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.